0: Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, a few weeks ago, uh, Ray got us started in chapter 3, and so we're on week number 9, week number 9 of Hebrews, and so we're going to jump into verses 7 through 19, so we got a lot of verses, and I tried really hard to get the handout down to four pages. I even considered um, not printing the text that we're going to be reading, so you would have it. Uh, But it still didn't get down to four, so we have five pages. So I'll talk fast, you listen fast, and we'll finish on time. Uh, But there's a lot of good stuff in here. And uh, so we're going to be Hebrews chapter 3 we will be beginning in uh, verse 7. So again, this is the ninth version, the ninth part of infinitely better. So let's pray, and we'll get started. God, we bow before you tonight. God, we ask for you, Lord, to speak to us. God, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see. God, in the heart to respond to that which you would show us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, who needs a handout? They're in the back now. Thank you very much for that. If you need a handout, just raise your hand. So in the last few weeks, we've been talking about Hebrews. And uh, so in uh, chapter 3, as Ray spoke here a week or so ago, Ray talked about Uh, Jesus being greater than Moses. And so we get to verse 7, and in verse 7 it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Now, if you've been trekking with us through this study, the very absolute very first slide of this entire study uh, says, uh, Pastor Tony uh, started the study out, and the very first slide says that Hebrews was written by the Holy Spirit, the very first slide of our study. And so we get here to chapter 3 and verse 7. And uh, the Bible says, as the Holy Spirit says. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the reader uh, that the Holy Spirit is what, who has inspired uh, the writing here. And he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And so he's referencing the Israelites' journey. He says, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who heard and yet rebelled, Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And verse 17, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now you'll notice that we skipped verses 12 through 14, which we'll come back to. And so as we begin tonight in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews warned the recipients of this letter about the danger of drifting. And so the danger was that if, if unchecked, that our hearts will begin to lead us, even if slightly off course, to end up in a completely different destination than God intends for our life. And so the warning that we studied here a few weeks ago from chapter 2 was that it can be a dangerous position if we allow ourselves to drip, that we've got to stay focused on what it is that God has in store for us. And if you study the exodus of the Israelites and how they came out of Egypt and their journey to the promised land through the wilderness, you'll see that there were multiple times in that journey that they drifted, that their hearts strayed from the direction in which God was leading them. And so the warning here is that there is a danger to drift, that simply going along with the world's currents and the pressures of the world will cause us to end up far from Christ. I mean, if you turn on the news today and you look at really anything that's being reported on today, everything is leading us in a direction away from where God intends for us to be. And so, as a nation, uh, we are certainly not focused on the things that God intends for us. And it's easy with drifting uh, to do that because what happens is when you're drifting, you're not rowing, right? We talked about this. And so, when you're not rowing, you're not focused on being intentional. And so, what begins to happen in our life is, as we drift is that we're just going with wherever the current takes us. And so if the culture says, well, this is what we ought to believe, if we're drifting, if we're not rowing, if we're not being intentional about our walk with Christ, then we will end up moving along with the the direction of which the culture will take us. And so he warns here that left unaccountable, that our hearts tend to shift our focus away from Christ. That left unaccountable, that's what happens with our hearts. You know, that's the intention of D-Group. And so here's the warning that I want to issue with D-Group is that D-Group is intended for us to get together as believers and read the Bible and to study God's Word and to have accountability. And the accountability is just, does not just stop at attendance. Uh, accountability does not just stop at attendance. Accountability means, means this. If you don't have accountability in your life, if you don't have someone in your life who knows what your greatest struggle is, If you don't have someone in your life that is walking with you in faith and you've not shared your greatest struggle with them, you don't have accountability. And so in your life, you've got to have someone that you can encourage along the way, but that someone can encourage you, and they've got to know those things about you. And what happens with our heart and what happens with the Israelites, as we'll see, is that our heart will begin to lead us astray, and we've got to have somebody that is bold enough but that loves us enough to say, listen, you're going in the wrong direction. And so the encouragement here is that if we are not accountable to what's going on in our life, we certainly will shift. Our hearts will lead us. And so in chapter 3 now, the writer gives us our second warning, which is the danger of doubting. The danger of doubting. Now, I know a lot of you, when you hear the word doubting, you say, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor Matt. I'm at church today, okay? I'm I'm in a Baptist church. I, I believe the things that you guys believe. I believe the things that Baptists believe. And so, you know, doubting is not really something that I struggle with. Well, as we'll see, I would beg to differ. I think a lot of times our hearts lead us in direction, and it's actually doubting in which uh, will bear its uh, ugly head. And so the the writer gives the warning, listen, the danger that you, you see is not just drifting, but doubting that can lead to that drifting. You see, doubting or hearing God's promises and assurances and then insulting God by not trusting them is the essential danger to be avoided. And so the writer of Hebrews is is saying, wait just a second, do not forget how easy it was for the Israelites after all that God had done for them to begin to doubt the goodness of God. You see, the Israelites got to the very edge of the promised land. They got tiptoe to the front of where God intended to take them, and then all of a sudden they stopped. God provided a way for them to get out of uh, Egypt. God provided a way for them to cross the Red Sea when they were in danger. God provided them in all the military conquests that we've gone through in the book of Joshua. God provided every bit of that. And there was grumbling and there was complaining. There was doubting along the way. And then they get to the edge of the promised land. And what do they do? They send in 12 spies, if you've read the story. And the 12 spies go in and they, they scout out the land and they say, okay, what's going on in the promised land? And they send those 12 spies back. And only two of them thought it was possible that they could take the promised land. You see, the danger in our own hearts is that look at all that God has done for us. Look at all the things that God has provided. The greatest thing that we could possibly possess, which is salvation. God did all of that. He did every bit of it himself. He sent his son to embody human form, to be the incarnation of God himself. He lived a perfect life. He sacrificed himself. He voluntarily went to the cross. He provided salvation by raising from the grave, defeating death, and securing our uh, opportunity for eternity. He did every bit of that. And if he never did anything else, it would be enough. But yet, day in and day out, we're sitting on padded pews. We're in air conditioning. we're, We're in a country that's free to worship God and free to voice opinions, whatever those may be. God has provided all of that just like he did for the Israelites. And yet, they get to the edge of the promised land and they say, I'm just not sure if that's what God wants for us. We're guilty of doing the same thing. You see, the writer here in Hebrews says that since Jesus was both faithful to God which was the model for the believer's commitment. And he was reliable, which call, should cause believers to trust. He has built the case in the first three chapters here, that they would indeed be in greater danger than those who tr- uh, distrusted God's promises on the basis of Moses, or in other words, this, he says, look, okay, uh, you know, this Jewish audience, he's saying, if you, if you doubt what happened in Moses' life, even if you were to do that, which he just built the case for in verses 1 through 6, but he says, even if you were to do that, how much more danger are we in if we discount or we doubt what the Son of God did? And so Jesus was faithful. He was reliable. So Hebrews is giving us The best description is the the best display of the majesty and the holiness of who Jesus is and what Jesus means to believers. And so the danger, he says, is to listen. Don't let your heart stray. Do not doubt. And so he begins to implore his readers by reminding them of the outcome for Israel by quoting Psalms 95. He says, Listen, don't forget what happened to the Israelites. Don't forget how uh, they got to the edge of the promised land. He says that they hardened their hearts in the rebellion and they tested God in the wilderness. They saw God's work for 40 years. They provoked God. And so he is reminding them what happened to the Israelite nation. You see, it was absolutely glorious that God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. I mean, think of that story. How amazing is that story, that they're in bondage. They've been in bondage over uh, 400 years, that Pharaoh is completely against God. And Moses comes in, the most unlikely character, like Pastor Tony mentioned this morning. And he comes in and says, hey, I'm about to pack up all my guys, and we're going to leave. And Pharaoh says, I don't think that's going to happen. And then finally, after 10 plagues, God does uh, rescue the Israelites uh, from bondage. And then he takes them to the Red Sea. And then they get to the edge of the Red Sea in an an impassable, uh, monumental uh, in their life, a moment in their life. And here we see that God parts the Red Sea, brings them across. Then they get to uh, Canaan, what happens in uh, Jericho, that God is fighting their battles. God is providing all of this for them. So yeah, it was glorious that God redeemed them out of Egypt. And the same could be said for you and for me. Think about all of the sins that you've committed Think about all the the infractions against holy God that we have perpetrated against God. Uh, What a glorious redemption it is for every one of us that stand here and are redeemed that have answered the call of salvation, that God has forgiven completely, that He separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. Think of how glorious that is. And yet, just like the Israelites, the tragedy is that they perished in the wilderness as amazing and glorious as the story is of the redemption and the rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, most of them died in the wilderness. That's not a very good ending. It's not a good ending at all. And you see, that's what the writer of Hebrews is bringing out here in verses 7 through 19 is, look, you've got to got to finish well. You got to finish well you can not come out of the gate blazing And then squander the end of your life and not end well like the Israelites. You can't die in the wilderness. You can't come out in your early life, live for Christ. And then when you get in your mid-40s and early 50s, then you just start tailing away and say, well, I'm going to retire in the kingdom of God. You can't do that. I was preaching at a church a while back, and there was a, a couple there, and the lady came often. The husband never came, and so one day I asked, why is your husband never here? And her response was, well, he's done his time. And I thought, well, I mean, is he in prison or what? I mean, what does that mean? And uh, she, she said, you know, he's done his time. He, he came to church for many years raising our kids, and so he, he's done his time. And I thought to myself, what a tragedy to view Christianity like that. So the writer of Hebrews says, look, it was amazing what God did for the Israelites But they died in the wilderness. Why did Israel die in the wilderness? Why did the majority of the nation perish? Well, it's because they presumed on the kindness of God. Well, God's done all this stuff for us in the past. Surely He'll come through for us now. Haven't you heard that before? Well, how could God send someone to hell? Isn't He a God of love? He would never do that, He's a God of mercy. Well, he is a God of love, and he is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of righteousness and holiness and judgment, and that there's a standard that God expects. And the only way that you and I could ever keep that standard is through Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm a recovering legalist. I tried. If you've been in here and you were a legalist, you've tried. You've tried to hold the bar up, but you couldn't do it, and neither could I. And that's what Jesus does for us, and so what Israel did is they presumed that, well, God God's not going to do that. I can just get away with this. I can just get away with that. That's how drifting begins, right, is that we, we begin to think that we know better for us than what God knows for us, and we begin to drift, and we begin to tail away. And then we begin to doubt the things in which God has in store for us. We doubt that accountability is actually something that we need in our life. We doubt that fellowship and community are things that we need in our life. We read God's word, and it is a pure confrontation with the sin that's present in our life. And we begin to doubt if God really means what He said, which is what the downfall of humanity began with. Did God really say? They presumed on the kindness of God. You see, there were 603,550 men of war for Israel, 603,550. And of those 603,550, 603,548 of them died in the wilderness because God said, because of what you did, because you did not trust in me, because you did not follow me, you're not going into the promised land. Now, Joshua and Caleb, they thought, we can do this. With God, we can do it. There's, sure, there's giants in the land. We talked about that in one of our previous studies. Sure, there's giants in the land. Sure, it's going to be difficult, but we have God. You see, that's one of my favorite parts of Scripture is in Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get to the edge of the furnace, and they say this, that my God is able to deliver me. But if he doesn't, he is still God. That They said, look, we believe that r- despite the circumstance, just like Pastor Tony talked about with the hairy man on the heel this morning, that despite our circumstances, that we can come to a point in our life that we say, God, whatever it is that you have in store for me, I'm going to trust in your ways, and I'm going to trust in your guidance. But Israel didn't do that. And I'm afraid sometimes in our life, we don't do it either. You see, every day that the Israelites were in the wilderness, they saw 41 military funerals, besides all the civilians who died. Imagine that, 41 military funerals per day. I used to live in Virginia, and uh, so when we moved up there, somehow, I don't know how, um, I became friends with the funeral director. And so he would call me often, very often. And uh, he would ask for me to preach funerals of people who didn't have a church. And I don't know if you've ever done that or been to a funeral for someone who did not believe in Christ. But it's very difficult. And so I would meet with the families, and I remember they would tell me stories. And so I would just, hey, you know, tell me about this lady or tell me about this man. And they would tell me stories, and it's, you know, stories about baseball or stories about celebrities that they knew or stories about this and on and on. And they'd tell me all these stories, and all those stories were absent of the most important thing, which was Christ. And I thought to myself, these people have wasted their lives and I'm given the task of standing up in front of a few hundred people and talk about their life. And so the only resolution was that I had to just preach the gospel. It was my only choice. And I think about that oftentimes in all the people that I stood before their casket. And I gave the last words that were spoken about them and their life. And I couldn't say anything about Jesus in their life. Because they didn't know Jesus. They didn't finish well. They didn't stand before God when the lights were turned out and they were face-to-face in eternity with God. That didn't go well for them because they didn't end well. And I think about that for my life, and I think about that oftentimes that when, you, when the lights are turned out, what is it that people will say about me? What reflection of Christ did I resemble? How did I lead people to know Jesus? One of the questions we talk about in our D group is this. Have I influenced anyone for the gospel this week? Did I end well? Did I stay engaged with my faith? Did I continue to follow Jesus? Listen, the Israelites were God's chosen people. So when we read here and he says uh, the danger of falling away, which we read here previous weeks, he's talking to brothers here. He says, brothers, and so for the believer, you got to finish well. Forty-one funerals every day. You see these graves, they're a warning for Christians that it can happen to us. It can happen to us. And so the principle that we see here as we get started tonight is that A redeemed people may lose blessings which depend on continuing faith to enjoy. A redeemed people can lose blessings. All of the things that God had in store for the Israelites. Think about it. What was their description? It was a land flowing with milk and honey. That sounds pretty awesome to me. I mean, all of their life, God had brought them to this pinnacle of their life. Of all the things that God had in store for them, this amazing promised land was the destination in which he intended to get them there. Now, like Pastor Tony talked about this morning, what a journey they went through to get there and all the things that God taught them in the interim. But the promised land was the destination. And they got to the edge of it. And so then I got to thinking this week, what does that look like for us? I mean, we have... 66 books full of the promises of God. All of the things in which God intends for us. All of the promises and the blessings. John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and to have it more abundantly. Right? The first part of the verse is the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And so oftentimes, Christians don't look like they're living the abundant life. Now, I'm not talking about your best life now and all the possessions and all the things that you can imagine. I'm talking about living at peace with the Spirit of God, doing what God intended for you to do, being in fellowship with the Spirit of God. How many people get there? God calls you to do something. God uh, convicts your heart. God gives you a challenge. God gives you a task. God is drawing you to do something for the kingdom. Maybe it's something extremely small. Maybe it's something that in your life you may think is insignificant, but maybe, maybe it's sharing the gospel. Maybe it's walking across the road to your neighbor and saying, how can I pray for you? Amen. On the way home from church today, we had another family in our church was with us, and, and uh, my wife made the comment, you know, God used uh, a small meeting years ago for, for us to meet, and, and you ended up coming to Michael, and then their entire family ended up getting saved. God used all of those circumstances that seemed meaningless and seemed pointless at the time, but yet God used them. I wonder how many of those opportunities that we stand toenail to toenail with at the edge of the blessing of God, and yet we completely miss it. Because why? Because we doubt. God, are you, are you sure that's what you want me to do? God, it just doesn't feel right that I would go across the road and talk to my neighbor. God, it doesn't feel right. What would my coworkers say if I stand up for what I believe in? Edge of the promised land. That believers miss out on the blessings of God based on the lack of continuing faith. I wonder if that is us. You see, in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. You see, as I mentioned, when the lights are turned down and the curtains are drawn, is that the response that people say, Matt lived a life by faith? You see, we're really good at saying we're saved by faith. We quote Ephesians chapter 2. We say, yeah, I'm saved by faith. But is our life indicative of a life that is lived by by faith, You see, not only is the believer saved by faith, the believer lives by faith. That's a life that finishes well. It's a life that lives by faith. Because here, herein lies the problem. If God's people cease to live by faith, well, then what happens is we cease to live a life that is marked by the hand of God. So, again, what will people say? What is the reflection that your life gives, that that's a person who's marked by the hand of God, that things happen in your life, that God does things in your life that can only be explained by the hand of God? And so tonight, I think there's just a few things here I want to point out or pull out of the text that we see in Hebrews chapter 3 that I think will encourage us to finish well that will encourage us to pursue the path in which God has in store for us, that will enable us to get over doubting, and that will help us to step into those things in which God has in store for us. So we revert back to verse 12, which says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so the first thing that I want you to see tonight is that we're being encouraged to rest. That that God says, if you want to finish well, pursue peace. Rest is what I wrote up there, but it it means to pursue peace. That we can rest in who Jesus is. That we're not struggling to be who we want to be or we're not struggling to do what we want to do. But we're resting in who God is and and what God has in store for our life. And so the writer of Hebrews says, take care lest any of you have an unbelieving heart which will lead you to fall away. Now I want to be clear tonight is that the promised land was never a picture of heaven. It was a picture of rest. That God was not kicking the Israelites out of heaven, that God was saying, no, look, this was a place of rest that I had in store for you. And because you did not continue in faith that you doubted you are not going to inherit that rest. And so the first thing that we need to do to finish well is that we need to rest, that we need to accept the things in which God has in store for us. When Israel got to the border of the inheritance, they delayed because they doubted the promise of God. They doubted. Can God really overcome those giants? Well, I don't know. He overcame Egypt. He overcame the Red Sea. He overcame Jericho and many other places. I'm just not sure if God can overcome those few giants that are left. But Caleb and and Joshua said, I think he can do it. You see, that's the people that you want in your life, the people that say, I think God can do it. It's just like last week when Pastor Rod preached on Lionhearted Faith. We had a great conversation in uh, Sunday school about the armor bearer. How many of you have an armor bearer in your life? Someone that'll go to battle with you. Someone that's in the trenches with you that's pursuing the things that God's laid on your heart. How many of you have that armor bearer? Someone that is pursuing God and that's walking with you and that together that you'll do anything for the kingdom of God. You see, Jonathan had an armor bearer because Jonathan had some credibility in that guy's life. And so together they pursued what God had laid on Jonathan's heart and he was able to see things, the the armor bearer was able to see God do things in Jonathan's life that if he would have said no, that if he said, Jonathan, I'm not going with you where God's calling you to go. Jonathan, it doesn't make any sense for me to go over to the enemy territory with you. God's not calling you to do that and he would have missed all of what Jonathan had accomplished for God. And the same could be said about every one of us. Look at all the opportunities that are around us. Just, you know, it's hard to go to Michael sometimes, right? It's hard to go here. I mean, look at all the opportunities that abound. And they're not easy things. Listen, we're not just taking up money and sending it to the mission field and saying, good luck, guys. We hope you tell people about Jesus. But we're packing our bags and going 5,000 miles to tell people about Jesus. Right? We're not just saying we should reach our neighborhood, but we're packing a trailer and we're putting block parties all over the community where we show up and we love people for two or three hours on a Saturday for no reason whatsoever simply because we've been compelled by the love of Jesus to do those things. And I could go on and on and on of all the things and the opportunities that we have before. God, is it, is it in your life those people that you hang around with that say, well, with God we can do it? How will we reach one of the largest counties in Mississippi? Well, with God, we can do it. How will we plant a church in a state and in a Bible belt that's saturated with other churches? There's more churches per square mile than any other, anywhere else in the world in Mississippi. But yet, with God, we can do it. As long as there's unreached people, there's a mission. And so Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. They believed in the rest that God had in store for them. And so the writer warns here, he says, the warning is that an unbelieving heart would lead you to fall away. Now remember, I started by saying that, hey, you're here tonight. This is not the people out there that don't believe in God. But the writer here says, brothers, he says, don't let an unbelieving heart lead you to fall away that you began to doubt. Now I'm not saying you're not here I'm saying that you're not pursuing God, that you're not pursuing peace in your life because what can happen is you can begin to drift in a pew and you can begin to drift in a small group because you can hide in those places and that you cannot be engaged in your faith and pursuing the things in which God has in store for you. In order for the Israelites to go into the promised land, they had to step into the promised land. They had to go through all that God had brought them through to get to that point. And the same is true for you and me, that just showing up and sitting in a pew is not going to get you to where God wants you to be. That you've got to be intentional, that you've got to be engaged in your faith, that you've got to be pursuing the things in which God has in store for you. And again, I'll say, when you go to Michael Memorial, the opportunities abound. And so the unbelieving heart led, it to, led them to fall away because they began to doubt. You see, the wilderness wanderings of Israel simply represent the experiences of believers who do not claim their spiritual inheritance in Christ. People who doubt God's Word and live in restless unbelief. My goodness, is our world restless or what? No one's satisfied. There's always a problem with something. There's always an issue. Nothing is concrete. There's no standard. Restlessness. Because they don't know what their identity is. They don't believe the promises of God. And so they're restless. You see, make no mistake about it. God was with, is with those people, those people that claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but yet they're not following into the promised land. God is with those, just like he was with the Israelites, but they do not enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. Restlessness. You see, these people, they may be out of Egypt. Maybe it's you. You may say, well, I've been redeemed. I've been rescued from bondage. You're out of Egypt, but you're not yet in Canaan. You're not living the life that God called you to live. You see, Israel, they were, they were pretty stubborn, and they departed from the living God by refusing God's will for their lives. That they, they supposed that their will for their lives was better than God's will for their lives, and so they stubbornly wanted to do what? They wanted to go back to Egypt. Now, think about that. They wanted to go back to slavery, to making bricks, to being in bondage. And God says, No, I'm not, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not letting you go back to Egypt. And so, what did God do? Well, He disciplined them in the wilderness. He says, you, you're, not, you're not going to the promised land. He didn't allow His people to return to bondage. And so what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing here is that true believers have eternal salvation because we trust Jesus Christ, the living Savior who constantly intercedes for us. But what he does point out is that this confidence is no excuse for sin, that we can't use our secure eternal salvation as a license for sin. Isn't that what uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, that uh, because we have salvation in Jesus, that sin should abound? He says, certainly not. And so what does God do? God disciplines His children who sin. And so it's the same thing for us as we talk about this, is that in our lives, what often happens in our life when we begin to drift, when we begin to doubt, is we go back to things that we're familiar with. It's all throughout Scripture. Think about when we were going through the study of John. What happened to the disciples after Jesus was crucified? What did they do in John 20 and 21? They grabbed their nets and their fishing poles and they went back and jumped in a boat, right? What was familiar to them? What was common to them? What was comfortable to them? And it's the same thing the, the Israelites wanted to do hundreds of years earlier, is they said, God, you've called us out of this bondage. You've called us out of this slavery. You've gotten us out of that hard ruler Pharaoh. And God, we're going to follow you. And then all of a sudden, things didn't go the way that they thought they should go. God provided manna during the day and a fire by night to guide them. He gave them all that they needed. Their shoes didn't wear out according to Scripture. And yet they began to presuppose that they had a better idea for their destination than God had. And so they began to say, well, God, if we were just back in Egypt, we would be better off. Really? I mean, it's easier for us to read that and say, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But we say those things. And so the Israelites' hearts believe the lie that staying in Egypt would have been better. And so, too, do our hearts lead us to angst with God. That sometimes we grieve God. If we're not resting in Him, if we're struggling with our direction and our will, what often happens, and you can go back and look on the website. We've gone through how to know God's will, how to discern God's will. But what often happens in our life is that we say, God, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to pray for you to make it happen. How is that God's will? Instead of saying, God, what is it that you want me to do? Like Pastor Rod said last week, we've got coloring books in our life, that we've got the lines all drawn out, and we say, God, I want you to color all these lines magnificent, and I want you to make them look glorious. Instead of saying, God, here's a blank slate, and I really don't know what kind of artist you are, and I don't know what you want to draw, but whatever you draw on that paper will be priceless to me. And, God, whatever it is, I'm going to cherish it, and I'm going to treasure it, and I'm going to do whatever it says that's what a canvas is. The Israelites wanted a coloring book. And so many times in our heart, we do the same thing. God, here's what I want for my life. God, here's what I think you should do in my life. Instead of saying, God, where are you working? I mean, go back to to Henry Blackaby's experiencing God. What happens oftentimes in our life is we draw a circle around ourselves and we say, God, come work in my circle. And then we say, well, God, why aren't you working in my circle? Well, could it be that it's because you're the only one in that circle and nothing spiritual is happening in that circle? And so God's not working in your circle. He wants to, and he's working in many other places. And so what God encourages us to do then is to say, look, where is God working? Where can I be a part of what God is doing? And then go jump in with both feet instead of being so pious to believe that our circle is the only place that God can work. But the truth of the matter is, as far from that, that God is working all around us, it's simply a matter of us joining in what God is doing. And so our heart leads us astray. You see, the heart of every problem is simply a problem of the heart, is that our heart leads us astray. The Bible says that our heart is deceitfully wicked. I think about that every time I see donuts. Right? You want to eat them, but you know you shouldn't, but you do anyway. And so the reader of Hebrews, the readers here of Hebrews, rather, were facing the same dilemma. Okay, so the pressure is, how can you believe in Jesus? Didn't he say he was coming back? I don't see him anywhere. What, what's going on here? I thought you're believing in something that is not real, it can't be true. And it's the same lie that we hear today. Well, I thought Jesus was coming back. Well, he hasn't come back yet. And so the readers, they're saying, well, what should we do? Should we just go back to our old lifestyle? It was easier then. We weren't persecuted then. It was easy because nobody bothered us. They didn't challenge our belief system. They didn't ask us questions about why we were doing crazy things for God. And so they said, should we just stay here or should we persevere? Just stay and persevere or, or turn and just go back like the disciples did, like the Israelites wanted to do. And so we all face the same question every single day. Will we persevere or will we go back? We've got illustrations of both in the Bible. People that fought to the end, that that stayed strong in their faith, that they believed all the way to the very end, just like Stephen, right? When Paul was there, when Stephen was stoned, and yet he said, God, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I mean, there's many illustrations of that. But then there's illustrations in John six sixty six where Jesus said, hey, if you want to come after me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they didn't understand what he meant. And so in six sixty six, the Bible says in John that they turned and followed him no more. You see, their heart grieved God. You see, there's a big difference in having peace with God and having peace from God. Peace with God is salvation. Peace from God is living in the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives us a great illustration of that. In Matthew chapter 11, the Bible says, Come to me, Jesus is writing here, Come to me all who labor, or Jesus is speaking rather, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Come to me, all you are uh, laboring and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And then in verse 29, he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, what do we see here again? Rest for your souls. And so Jesus says, Come to me, I'll give you rest You see, there's a difference in having peace with God and peace from God. The peace with God is in verse 28. Come to me and I'll give you rest. It is a positional rest. That because of what Jesus has done, that what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that what the writer of Hebrews has spent three chapters elaborating on is that now positionally we are now believers in Jesus Christ. Now we are inheritance of the kingdom of God. And because of that, we're now children of God. So positionally we are saved, or to put it this way, that we are free from the penalty of sin, The penalty of sin is what? According to Romans chapter 6, it's death. The wages of sin is death. And so we're free from the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God. So we're free from that now. But it doesn't mean that we're not free from the power of sin. You see, that's what sanctification does in the believer's life, is it helps us to be free from the power of sin that the enemy perpetrates upon us. And so Jesus said, hey, come to me, and I will free you from the penalty of sin. I will give you rest. And then in verse 29, he says, take upon my yoke, learn from me, which is what? Sanctification, and you will find rest for your soul. That's peace from God, right? That now all of a sudden we're walking with God positionally. We've been saved, that we've been freed from the penalty of sin. And now God, Jesus is saying, you want to be freed from the power of sin? Well, then come to me, learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. So the second is experiential. Is that we experience the rest. That there, remember what we said earlier, the restlessness of the world, that there is no restlessness. That now we have peace from God. So rest in Scripture metaphorically refers to God's blessings of safety and security and, of course, salvation. It's safety and security, and of course, salvation. And so the first rest that we see is the rest that we experience as believers is that of eternal salvation. That we're not at war with God anymore. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It just means that God's taken your place and paid the penalty for that through His Son, Jesus. And so we experience that through eternal salvation. And, of course, the second rest is that of submission. It's the victory that we walk in in Christ. It's the John 10.10 that you might have life more abundantly. It's following. It's pursuing peace. It's resting in who God is and the will that God has for your life. But that restlessness is always often so present in many people's lives. You see, one of the greatest issues that our society deals with is anxiety restlessness, lack of peace from God, that there's always a question. There's second-guessing. Many people struggle with anxiety. There was a pastor in California here recently that took his own life because of the struggle with depression and anxiety. It's all around us. Maybe you deal with that. Maybe you struggle with that. You see, doubt is one of the Major influencers of, of anxiety is doubt. Well, did I do that right? Did I say that right? Did, did, did I do what, is God calling me to do this? Is, that the, is it just me or is it? And so there's always these questions of uncertainty, of not knowing what it is. That, and so there's always second guessing. It's a major influencer. And so what doubt does is it's simply an on-ramp to unbelief. When we begin to question the things of God, the Bible says, Paul writes in Corinthians that the promises of God are found in the yes. It's just like, here I am, Lord, send me, right? It's the promises of God are found in the yes. And so doubt, what doubt begins to do in our life is that when God calls us, when God draws us, when God convicts us of sin, when God calls us to a a certain area of ministry or God uh, calls us to share our faith or to live out our faith, what happens is when we begin to doubt God when we delay, when we question, when we disobey. And it's an on ramp to us becoming uh, to, to unbelief. What what happens oftentimes, and this is the best illustration that I've ever heard, is imagine, if you will, a forest fire, and there's a tree that's been uh, there's a stump in the uh, Forest. And as this forest fire comes ab- about, it comes and it jumps on that stump and it begins to burn and it begins to burn and it's hot and, and this fire is, is consuming uh, the stump. And so before it consumes the stump, it just moves on and the fire just moves away from the stump. Well, the next time that that fire comes through there, it may jump on that stump and burn, but it's not going to burn half as hot and quite as long and it'll move on and keep going. And what will eventually happen is if a fire continues to come through that area, that that stub won't burn anymore. That it's been burned so many times that it wasn't consumed and it'll just, it'll just skip right over that stump and it'll continue to move. That's the same thing that happens in our life when we quench the Holy Spirit of God. That when God calls us to do something, when the Holy Spirit impresses upon our heart to do something and we doubt that, we begin to unbelieve or disbelieve that what God is calling us to do is best for our life and we doubt it. We begin to become calloused to the Holy Spirit. And that we build up a resistance to what God is prompting us to do. And it's not really, you know, you've been in places where people say, oh, I really sense the Spirit of God. And you walked away thinking, well, I didn't. Wonder why that is. It could be because maybe you have a calloused heart. It certainly could be because you're not a believer. But it also could be because you got to the edge of the promised land and you began to doubt. And you began to follow your own devices and your own ways. And you became calloused to the movement of the Holy Spirit. God's at work all around you. I mean, think about Elijah with his servant, and the the army came to get him, and Elijah said, look, God, let him see that you're there. And he looked out, and the army of the Lord was there. And that's the same thing that's present in every believer's life, is that we have the Spirit of God inside of us that is what resides in in, in the temple of God inside of us that leads us to a life that is lived by faith. But many, many people, just like the Israelites, are getting to the edge and not living in that promise because we're not sensitive to the things of the Spirit of God because we're calloused. You see, there's many people who come to the truth, but not everyone anchors themselves to it. You see, an anchor is for when the storms of life blow that you stay founded in the truth. That you believe the truth. That when you get to the edge of the promised land, there's giants there and it seems insurpassable. You have to be reminded of all the things that God has already done. You see, the truth can never change, but we can change, and that's the danger. God's word never changes, the truth never changes but we change all the time. And so unbelief leads us to hardness of heart. As we become callous, and we say, well, God can never use me, or that would never happen in my life, or I'm just not good enough for that blessing. And we believe all the lies of the devil, and then we miss out on what it is that God intends for us. And so it leads to our hardness of heart. And the way that this takes place is when there is no confession of sin, and accountability in your life. Remember what I said earlier? Who knows your greatest struggle? That's the person you're accountable to. That's the person who's walking with you to encourage you. If you trust them enough to tell them your greatest struggle, they love you enough to help you get to where God wants you to be. I don't even have to know who it is. But when there's no confession, when there's no accountability, well, then hardness of heart begins to take root. There's no declaration of war on our sin when we allow it to remain. No one, no army intending for victory would allow an enemy to reside in their camp. No one. Achan is a great reminder that God doesn't take sin lightly and that sin cannot remain in the camp even if it's buried beneath the tent. And so what has to happen in our life is that we've got to declare war on sin in order to be at peace from God. And so the grand and terrible lesson of Israel's history is that it is possible to begin begin well and end poorly. And that's a scary sentence. That it's possible for you and me to begin well and to end poorly. So the writer of Hebrews says, listen, Pursue peace, rest in who God is and what he has in store for you. The second blank on your handout here is to encourage, to encourage one another. In Hebrews chapter 3, and verse 13, it says, But exhort one another every day, encourage one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so what Hebrews says is that in order for us to rest, that we should begin with encouraging one another. Maybe you're here tonight and you say well I want to rest I want to I want to pursue peace I want to get into I want to receive those blessings in which God has in store for me. Well the the way that you began to do that in the very next verse is that you start looking at other people and you stop looking at yourself. You know the acronym joy Jesus others yourself. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that you begin to focus on other people that you encourage them to exhort one another every day. And so we be, we should begin rather to encourage One another, because what happens is often instead of encouraging each other, we complain. We complain about what we don't have. Oh, well, you know, I wish I had this, or I wish this had happened in my life. And all of that begins with negativity, every bit of it starts with negativity is looking at everything that God has done and then there's this one thing that you don't have and all of a sudden it's negative. And well, I wish that had happened or I wish God would have given me this. And so you began to be negative. And so what happens with negativity is you begin to grumble and complain about it. We all are guilty of this. And we grumble and we complain and so we take our negativity and we seek a team to rally with, right? Right? We want to find somebody who agrees with me, someone who doesn't have the same thing that we don't have, and we want a team, and we began to complain about it. And so instead of resting in what God has already given us and what God has done for us, we began to complain and and be negative and, and talk bad about it and grumble, and then we start trying to rally people together. Well, don't you agree that this is terrible? And so we want somebody to listen to us, somebody that will agree. And so ultimately what takes place is quarrels take place, and they are typically between one another or, you know, people, but sometimes they certainly take place with God. It's because when we complain, when we're negative, when we are grumbling, what we're saying is that God has missed something, that He's failed to do something or give something to me that I should have, and so we began to quarrel about that, and certainly it is with God. And so what happens in Psalm 95 is the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 95, you'll know this, but Psalm 95 begins as a call to worship. How interesting is that? Psalm 95 begins as a call to worship. And you can't worship God if you're not uh, at peace with one another, if you're not encouraging one another. Let, Let me read Psalm 95 to you. It's a call to worship. You see, when you're worshiping God, when your focus is on God, it's easy to encourage each other. It's hard to complain because you look at all that is God's and the sea is his and all that is made. Look at the work of his well, look at the wondrous work of his hands. That's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 95. It's hard to complain when you worship God. And so it's easy for us to to encourage one another when we're looking towards God the Father. And so the encouragement is to encourage one another. Here's a question for you. When is the last time you did that? When is the last time you called somebody randomly for no reason and didn't ask for anything, you only wanted to call to encourage? When is the last time you saw your Sunday school teacher or your D group leader or one of your pastors, you sent an email or you called or you saw them in the hall, a friend, a neighbor across the road, maybe someone that you work with, and you just encouraged them for no reason? You thanked them for something that they did that may seem small to everyone else, but you noticed it. You encourage them for helping you or walking with you or praying with you. You, in, you encourage your D group leader for being consistent for over nine months that week after week they sat together with you and they walked through the word of God with you and they prayed with you and they listened to all of the things that are going on in your life and they cared about those things. That person that knows your greatest struggle, that you say, look, I understand it's hard to carry someone else's burden along with your own, but I want to thank you for doing that, and I want to encourage you, and you, you bought their meal at Chick-fil-A, or you took them, you kept their kids. I mean, you want, a, you want an opportunity for encouragement. There are many around here. There's about 50 families who foster, and every weekend, you know, one weekend a month or something, if you invited their kids over to your house and you let them go out, I speak from experience. That would be nice. All right? You see what I'm saying? There's ways for that to happen. There's ways for you to encourage each other, and it does not have to involve money. A smile goes a long way. An encouraging word goes a long way. An atta boy goes a long way. An atta girl goes a long way. Listen, we, we, we want to believe, right, that we're bulletproof, that we can come in and we can just pursue God and we can do hard things for the kingdom and that if we're not smiling, then we're not following. But that's not the case. Listen, it can be hard and still be following Jesus. And we need each other there. We need armor bearers standing beside us and saying, all right, Jonathan, if you're going to go, I'm going to stand behind you, buddy. And whatever happens, I just want you to know I'm with you. I have to have people like that in my life. I've got to have people that I know that I can go to and say, look, Let's be real. This is hard. I know this is what God's calling me to do. And there's sometimes tears that are shed. And there's times that are difficult in my life to where I, I know God has called me to do something. And I know it's going to be hard. And there's times where I've wept. I remember when I lived in Virginia, weeping in the basement, knowing that God had called me to do something. But being in the middle of how difficult it was. That is Okay. Because I had people beside me that I knew I could talk to, that I knew were praying for me. Because we all need encouragement. And so I want you to look around. I want you to find somebody to encourage. And let that be known what you're known for. Last night they had a banquet at CCA, uh, Christian Collegiate Academy. And uh, Coach Tim Georgian is uh, the coach there. And so they all talked about the different things that the teachers are known for, kind of a little spoof. But guess what they said Coach G is known for? Clapping. He's an encourager, right? He's an encourager. He's encouraging. They say, well, Coach G, you clap no matter what. What if people said that about you? That, man, you encourage me no matter how how hard it is. If we're winning man, you're there, you're encouraging me. If we're losing, you're there, you're encouraging me. Listen, in life, a lot of times, it feels like we're losing. But it doesn't mean that we are. We already know what the end is, right? The scoreboard, the clock has hit zero. The scoreboard's already got the final score. We won, in case you don't know. But we need to be reminded of that sometimes. We need to be encouraged about that. And so I I want to challenge you to find someone to encourage. It shouldn't be very hard to do. But find somebody that you can encourage to say thank you. Encourage them. Because you see, when we look to what all that God has done for us and we worship God for what he's done for us, it's easy for us to look around and encourage others. And so the writer of Hebrews says listen, rest, pursue peace, encourage one another, and last but not least, persevere. To finish well. Finish well. In verse 14, he says this. He says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our original confidence or the confidence that we had at the beginning. So I want you to think about that. You remember the day that you got saved? You remember that day? There was a confrontation with sin in your life. You came to the reality that only God could save you, and the Spirit of God was drawing you in, and you responded to the Spirit of God, and you said yes to God, and you committed your life to follow God. You remember that? You remember those days, those hours, those weeks right after that? They couldn't keep you away from church. You were reading your Bible. I remember... I remember the night that I got saved, I, I had forgotten, I've shared this, but I had forgotten that I would parked at the church and I ran over a mile to my grandparents' house to tell them that I had gotten saved. I forgot that my truck was at the church. You remember that, that you felt like you could charge hell with a water pistol? You know those moments, right? Where your confidence was at an all-time high and that it didn't really matter what happened in life because you just, for the first time in your life, came to the realization that the only thing in life that matters is my relationship with Jesus. And now my identity is secure in who Jesus is. And no matter what happens the rest of my life, that I have a spot in heaven, that Jesus has paid the price for me. You remember that confidence? But what happens is we, we get churched, right? We start going through the motions, and we, we go to this, and we go to that, and we do this, and we do that, and we start losing that confidence. And what replaces our confidence is uh, uh, just everyday routine. And so routine becomes your confidence. And you just begin to do things because, well, that's just what we do. We go to church on Sunday night. Well, that's just what we do. We go to church on Wednesday night. And no longer is your confidence at an all-time high. It's just you're in the routine of going to church. He says, look, you were in the wilderness for 40 years. Every day you woke up, there was manna. Your confidence those first few weeks were probably at an all-time high. Man, look at all this manna. This is delicious. Look what God has provided for us. Every day you go out, there's new manna. Every day you go out, there's new manna. Every day you look at the bottom of your shoes, man, I've had these things for 20 years, and they still look brand new. Every day you go out and you believe in the promises of what God has provided, and then all of a sudden it became routine. Well, I know it's going to be there tomorrow. I'm not really worried about it. And so all of a sudden now, we're not finishing well. We're just going through the routine. We're just doing the same thing that we've always done. We're not living by faith. So the writer says, listen, don't forget the confidence that you had at the beginning. Don't forget what it was like that very first day that you got saved. You see, the author wants the hearers to see that the greatest danger facing them is not continued hostility from their neighbors. It wasn't deprivation of worldly goods or honor. So you lost the position you lost a friend because of what you believe. He says, that's not, that's not your greatest danger. He said, your greatest danger is the deceitfulness of sin, and it's our greatest danger. You see, the deceitfulness of sin is what threatens to harden our hearts and turn us away from not doubting. Sin is very deceitful. Listen, if there's sin in your life, don't play around with that. Because what will happen is if you let it stick around, if you don't declare war on whatever sin that is in your life, it's going to take root. And you're going to become callous to the things of God. And you're going to let it stick around. And all of a sudden, guess what happens? You're going to start to doubt the things of God. And the writer of Hebrews says you've got to persevere. He says... For we have come to share in Christ. Do not forget who you are in Jesus Christ. He's imploring them that despite the world that is crumbling around them to finish strong, to finish well. All 11 of the disciples were martyred. They finished well. That they gave their life to what they believed in and despite the circumstances in which they encountered, they said, I am going to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And I'm going to believe that Jesus will do what he said he'll do. And I'm going to live in that faith. So he's imploring them, finish strong. You see, we're not saved by holding on to our confession. What does Casting crown song say? That I'm not holding on to him, but he's holding on to me? You see, the fact is that we hold to our confession is proof that we're God's true children. That we continue in the faith. That we finish well. And so you may be saying, well, Pastor Matt, I want to finish well. I want to, I want to rest in Jesus. I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to encourage others. but it's hard sometimes. How, how do I do it? How can I keep up? There's so many things that are barraging me in my life, and how can I do that? Well, I want to leave you with some encouragement tonight. You see, perseverance is, you're not on your own. Perseverance is the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer which the work of divine grace that has begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. How do I know that? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. So if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, guess what will happen? You'll finish well. That Jesus has promised that what he started, that he's going to finish. And so I want to challenge you tonight to finish well, to rest in who Jesus is. And the way that you do that, the way that you begin to do that is you you become a Coach G, someone that claps no matter the circumstances, that encourages. Because why? Because we know that at the end of the game when the buzzer sounds, that Jesus has won the victory. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the fact that we can rest.